0: morning. Hey, you know, this past century, those that are followers of Christ could sometimes really get consumed with the whole concept of Christ's second coming. There was one man, however, who said that he hoped that the Lord would take his time before he came again because he wanted to do great things for him. That man's name was Billy Graham, and he went to be with Jesus at 99 years of age this past Wednesday. Um, people are saying that Billy Graham was probably the most important religious figure of our century. I would disagree with that. I, I think he was probably the most important man of our century. And, and we're going to talk about him some today because of that. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Billy Graham's new evangelical movement that he began that we're a part of. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting about Billy Graham as you get to study him is you see that you think you're starting up studying about Billy Graham, but pretty soon you're studying about Jesus Christ. Because his life was so wrapped up in the Lord. And so what we want to look at today is is not a great man, but we want to look at his dependence on God and uh, as we look at his life, look at how we can learn from his legacy and how we can walk closer with the Lord ourselves. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, William Franklin Graham Jr. was born uh, November 7th, 1918, four days before the end of World War I. Uh, He was of Scotch-Irish descent. He was in the South. He was known as Billy Frank growing up, and his two grandfathers had fought for the Confederacy his, uh, during the Civil War. His, his dad was penniless when he bought. He finally got up against enough money to buy some property, but he had several hundred acres, so they weren't really dirt poor. They had a dairy and a successful dairy. They had some people that, that worked for them, uh, but they were in the backwoods. And they were just kind of coming out. That area is all a suburbia, modern suburbia now. But it was, they were just out in the woods, so to speak. And Billy Graham spent most of his childhood just doing chores, working around the house. His parents were strict Presbyterian believers and went to church regularly, had devotions with their family. But uh, his dad was not as serious as his mom until he had a serious farming accident and almost died. And then he got more serious, and they decided to have a guy come and speak, an evangelist come and speak in their town. And his name was Mordecai Ham. Name like that, people come. You know, they just want to see what what that dude looks like. You know, kind of <laughs> Mordecai Ham. Who would ever do that to somebody? So, so that drew a lot of people, and so they brought they brought him in. And um, and Billy, it was a good time for Billy. Billy was about sixteen, and he was a rascal. He was rebelling against all of his years doing chores, and he loved baseball, and he was pretty good with girls. He was getting a lot of kisses, he said, in those days. He had a lot of girlfriends, and he was having fun. He was a good-looking young man and just having a good time. And Mordecai Ham kind of came in and changed things a little bit for him and his two best buddies, T.W. and Grady Wilson. And what I want you to see here is God's hand, his, his fingers in all of this, because those three men would be together in ministry for the rest of their lives. And who would have guessed that these three farm boys would have that kind of an impact on the world? So they went to hear Mordecai a couple times, weren't too impressed at first, but they kept going back, and finally Billy Graham gave his life to follow Jesus Christ. He was 16 years of age. Not long afterwards, a few years, a couple years later, he went off to Bob Jones College because it was the closest and most affordable college at the time for him to go to. It was an ultra-conservative college. Man, there's so much I can tell you, by the way. I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff because there's so much on Billy's life. But let's just say this. It was a very legalistic school at the time and he did not get along well. There again, he had some problems with girls. He kissed a girl once, got in trouble for that. He ended up leaving Bob Jones. He just said, I can't. This place is too restrictive. Restricted for me, he told his parents. So they sent him down to Florida Bible Institute, which was part of the Moody Bible Institute network. And that school was cool because it was such a nice place that they would use it for retreats. So all these people would come there for retreats, and the kids would run it, you know, run the retreat center, and then they'd go to school. And he got introduced to golf. They had their own golf course there, and he'd play golf. He was having the time of his life. He'd never had more fun. And he had this girlfriend, and he just was never more serious about her. And then one day the girlfriend said to him, she said, Billy, she said, you're a gifted teacher, you're a gifted leader. But she said, you're not committed to Jesus Christ. I want a man who is 100% committed to Jesus Christ. And you're not that man. And so she left him. And it rocked his world. So he went out to that golf course at night one time. The ninth hole. Got down on his hands and knees and began praying. And he found himself weeping. It was a watershed moment for him. He said, I never basically looked back from that point on. He decided he was going to follow Jesus all the way. He started preaching wherever he could. Uh, he was invited to a little village Baptist church. They said, If you're ordained as Southern Baptist, you can come our minister. He's like 19, 20 years old. Um, and he said, Okay, I don't care. I'll be ordained a Southern Baptist minister. So that's how I became a Southern Baptist minister. And he began speaking there. He was this, uh, the president of his class his senior year. He was involved in all these things. And then, again, a God thing. Two men came to the retreat part of the of the school, and they were visiting. They heard about him as a leader. They heard about him as a speaker. They went and heard him speak. They talked to him, and they said, what would you think if we sent you to Wheaton College? They paid for him to go to Wheaton. And so they sent him there. And Billy, of course, Wheaton is nice near Chicago. He was like a fish out of water. He was just a country boy. It took him a little while to adjust, but not too long. Very adaptable personality, very engaging, warm. Guy, he was just, like they say, he was what he was on television when he was interviewed and stuff, that's what he was really like. He was just very unpretentious. He, had, he sold himself short. He was a lot more intelligent than he let on to be. But his emotional you know, Q, you know, his emotional quota, his EQ was off the charts. He, he didn't have, there was no such thing as thin skin with Billy Graham. He just was who he was. He didn't care what you said or thought about him. He just was him. Um, just like his favorite song that he used to sing at the end, Just As I Am, that was the name of his, his memoirs, that was Billy Graham. And so he got along with people and he was working to help supplement his income. He got a, he got a Bachelor of Science degree basically in um, archaeology, or not archaeology, in anthropology, in anthropology, but he was working his way through doing furniture work, you know, delivering furniture, and then he started preaching, and there was a school across from the camp, a church across from the campus called Wheaton Tabernacle. He began speaking there, and everybody would take, it was a place where people would rotate in and out, guest speakers and students. He became the most popular guy there. Everybody started coming. It was around this time that he met a lady named Ruth Bell. Ruth was an absolutely fascinating gal. She was born in China, uh, her Her father was the famous uh, missionary uh, statesman and surgeon, L. Nelson Bell. She was raised in a boarding school in Korea. She came to Wheaton. one of the first times she'd ever been in the United States. Her sister would soon follow. Her sister was best friends with Ruth Stevens, who's sitting right here. And Ruth knew the Graham family. She babysat the Graham kids, um... So I, Ruth, you want to come up here and finish that today? No, no. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. She is the person to talk to. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but no, here's no, Ruth. No. You, you want? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'd love. Well, we've interviewed her before, and I'd love to have you. You so go talk to Ruth, and she'll tell. And if I say anything wrong, you can correct me. Okay, um, but I'm I'm doing the best I can here. But she knew him personally, and he was a good guy. Oh, you, bet. you bet. You had dinner with him, right? You guys would sit around the table and stuff and your dad was his lawyer for a while. yeah. In nineteen sixty, yes. My dad would be the liaison bet between him and his board and him and his staff. So they were very much involved. And just man of integrity. Hmm? He was a man of integrity. Yeah. That was the thing is Billy Graham, you know, he was just such a good, such a real guy and such a man of integrity. Big people always said, um, in many ways, he kind of is, is, his story unfolds. He reminded me a lot of a modern day Peter, you know, where he would speak to the masses and he wore his heart on his, on his sleeves. You knew just where he was coming from. And if he would he'd make mistakes, that was, what was so cool about him is he was so human. He'd make mistakes and then he'd apologize for them. He never made moral mistakes. You know, he, was never, he never lacked integrity, but he was always learning from the mistakes he made, and he became an example for, for the rest of us. Um, and so he's just, just a very real guy. So he meets Ruth, and she, um, she was, uh, from what I've understood, was, even pictures and I've heard, she's just a strikingly beautiful lady. Um, she, had, she was extremely unpretentious, and yet she had kind of this natural sophistication about her. And she had a very good sense of humor, a little bit of a dry sense of humor, could be kind of cutting at times, even. A very verbally adept herself, though more quiet than Billy. Um, and she was, um, you know, she was actually a good writer and and and, um, and poet and things like that later in her own life, and became very admired for the work that she would do. But when she came along with Billy, she wasn't interested in him. She wanted to be a missionary to Tibet. She wanted to go back. Her family had been flushed out. The war had started, World War II, and the Japanese had forced all the missionaries out, but she wanted to go back to Tibet. She wasn't interested in any men. Men were interested in her. She wasn't interested in them. First time she saw Billy, he was dashing down the steps of his dormitory, and she said, there's a young man who knows where he's going, but he didn't know where he was going, neither did she. God knew where they were going to be going. And uh, so she liked Billy, and she thought, well, maybe he could go on the mission field with me. But Billy said... I don't want to get in the way of you going on the mission field. If that's where God's calling you, you go. Otherwise, I'd like you to go with me. And here's the thing that happened is she found out she couldn't go to Tibet because of the war. So that was out. And as she said later, she said about Billy, this is a profound statement to say about anybody. She said, he wanted to please God more than any person I've ever known. What a statement. Not that I want to win awards. He just simply wanted to please God. He loved him so much that he just wanted to please him. She'd never seen that before. She felt like he, they, they, both, they were equally passionate about God. And so she signed on. And um, Her family, after the, after when the war came in, her parents retired out to Montreat, uh, North Carolina. And Billy would later make a, build a home there with Ruth up in a little log cabin up in the mountains there. And he went to visit her for the first time. She said, Billy, we're simple folk and when he got there she met him in an old dress barefoot her hair pulled back no makeup and she smiled and she was missing some teeth she'd put some pla- some black tape over it <laughs> and that that was just their relationship she was just a she was a hoot and she kept him in line they said you know like one time he talked about going into politics she said that's fine if you want to go into politics but it's going to be hard to be elected if you're divorced that's what's going to happen if you do. So they 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 worked each other really well. She held him accountable. Um, She was his confidant. She was his advisor and friend. And she basically raised the five children. Uh, That was a weakness in Billy's life that he later repented of and asked others on his staff to take notice of. And he would tell them, don't do what I did. I let my kids go. But by God's grace, the kids are all following the Lord today. Uh, T.W., Wilson, the guy that, you know, went to hear Mordecai Ham with him and later would run his organization for him. And he was interviewed by a biographer and they said, can you tell us some things about Billy and stuff? And he said, I'll tell you this. He said, there would be no Billy Graham without Ruth. So she was that important to him. It just, it, it, that's how relationships should be, you know, um, in, in Christ. And so they, they were teammates. And so uh, they got married right after um, college, and Billy took a job at a nearby Baptist church because the war was going on, and he was not a draft dodger. <laughs> he wanted to be a chaplain, and he had to have two years of experience to be a chaplain. So that was his intent, but again, God had other plans. Um, first of all, radio man would contact him, just out of the blue didn't I hear you speak at the Wheaton Tabernacle? I have a radio program. Would you like to take it over? So Billy, of course, says yes. He just has this little church, and he thought, oh man, my music is horrid at my church. I mean, it's awful. I need somebody. So he heard George Beverly Shea was singing up in Moody Bible Institute, I believe, at the time, and he went up to Chicago and to recruit him. George Beverly Shea, or Bev Shea, was a He's a warm-hearted, barrel-chested Canadian with an incredible, deep baritone voice who became really the first contemporary Christian artist. He sold thousands of albums. The first guy to sing with an orchestra. He wrote the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And everybody, all the girls were, you know, thought he was the greatest and everything. He was just extremely popular. And Billy just went up to him and said, would you like to sing on my show? And uh, Bev just got a kick out of him. You know, Bill, will it Billy was, you know, I think close to 10 years younger than him, but Bev just got such a kick out of him. He said, sure, I'll go ahead and do it. And the two of them became fast friends for the rest of their lives. So now his show becomes popular with Bev Shea singing on it, and, he, and the war ends, and he thinks, I don't even want to do this anymore. God, what do you want me to do? So he's driving down the road one day praying, and this guy waves at him and says, Pull over, pull over. So he pulls over, and it's a guy named Tory Johnson. Tori Johnson says, didn't I hear you sing, uh, speak at the Wheaton Tabernacle? And, and it, I've, I've heard you on the radio. You're doing a good job. Billy says, thanks. He says, we started an organization called Youth for Christ. We're reaching out to the kids. A lot of them have been traumatized by this war. We're going around the whole world. We'd like to hire you as our first employee. And next thing you know, Billy and, and, and Ruth were traveling all around the world. In those days, Billy Graham was at the height of his physical... powers as a speaker, he was described as as almost like a panther prancing across the platform. He was long and lean, about six feet, two inches. And uh, he had this hair, it was light brown hair that always looked a little windblown and his eyes were bright flashing blue. And uh, he had this voice that was absolutely incredible, like a trumpet that he could modulate and be soft or he could be powerful. Uh, And he had this eloquent Carolina accent that went along with it all. And so he soon became very popular. He was billed as America's most spectacular young evangelist and often compared with his friend, he became close friends with a guy named Charles Templeton, and they looked a lot alike and they sounded a lot alike when they called them the Gold Dust Twins. And so they became very popular in those days. Now, he was speaking at a place in Asheville, North Carolina, and it begins to touch close to home for us. When he was in uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, he was having a meeting, and they didn't have anybody to do music. And at the last minute, somebody said, there's this couple, and they went up to Wisconsin to go on their honeymoon. And it was so cold, they came back to visit us. Uh, We're good friends of theirs. Um, And he plays the trombone, and she plays the piano. They could probably fill in for you. So he said, okay. And that was Cliff and Billy Barrows, who became two of their closest friends. Um, Cliff Barrows was a cowboy from Ceres, California. And the two of them became very close for the rest of their lives and he would become his MC for all of his programs. He would head up all of his choirs and organize most of his crusades or his missions and his programs that he did. And so now he he had like a team around him. He had Bev Shea he could call on. He had the Barrows. And then um, he had his old buddy Grady, who was kind of a short, funny guy, kind of a natural comedian, kept everybody loose. He was his friend from the time they were little kids. And so now he's got four of them. And he said, now we've got a team, but we don't have any money. How are we going to do this? Then a God thing happens again. Dr. W.B. Riley dies, and in his last will and testament, he says, I want to give my northwestern schools all the way up through college in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Billy Graham. I want him to be my president and run it for me. Billy Graham, this is like, Billy Graham was like you know, 28 years old. And he, so he felt obligated to do it, so he did it. It helped him more than the schools in a lot of ways. He did it through 1952 for about six years. But during that time, it gave him you know, more prominence, but it also gave him money to be able to start his ministry. It gave him a base salary that he could share with his buddies along with the money they raised. And so they started their ministry. They came out to California. One of the first places they went to was a town that nobody had ever heard of. It was called Modesto. They came to Modesto. Modesto, California, and while they were there, they had over over, over 24,000 people came. Over 200 people gave their lives to Christ, and they started an organization there called the Modesto Gospel Mission. Billy Graham would frequently do that. Wherever he went, he was a catalyst for starting other ministries. But while they were there, they also started talking about how traveling ministers and pastors, a lot of times are traveling evangelists, can get in trouble and get... And, and they can be unethical, even though they don't initially intend to be, uh, because they're human beings. So they sat down and they came up with what Cliff Barrows always called the Modesto Manifesto. And this is what it is. It's a covenant they made between themselves. They, they said, number one, they would be honest and careful about raising money and depend on local committees rather than trying to pressure people into giving. They would have base salaries so they wouldn't have to pressure people. Second thing, they would hold each other accountable against sexual immorality they would not be seen any of them um, in private with a woman they 'd never go behind the closed doors. Every meeting had to be public with a woman. They would cl- work closely with local charity local churches and they 'd be honest about their numbers and publicity and that kept these guys for over sixty years pure like no other i mean that 's like a record to go sixty years with nothing you know on the record, um, morally pure so they went down to Los Angeles for a Los Angeles Crusade in 1949, and this is really where we we come to, to faith and fame. Charles Templeton, Billy's close friend and fellow evangelist, had become more liberal in his beliefs. And he told Billy he should too. And Billy began to have doubts. Templeton would actually leave ministry eventually. And Billy began to struggle. So he went to Forrest Home, it was kind of like Hume Lake down in Southern California. And he went there and he sat on a, on a rock, on, a, on an old boulder, and he set his Bible on a, on a tree stump and he began to pray and have it out with God. And he came to this conclusion that from now on he, would, he really truly believed that the Bible was God's word and he would preach only the Bible. And he came up with a saying that he became famous for, the Bible says, this isn't me, the Bible says. And there's actually a plaque there today, I've seen it, commemorating the spot where he made this decision. And so in 1949, um, he went to Los Angeles to speak. He wasn't supposed to speak that long, but what happened was another miracle, another thing that can almost not be accounted for. Um, William Randolph Hearst, the famous newspaper magnate, liked Billy Graham. And Billy didn't know why. Some people think why. Earlier on in Billy's ministry, Billy would preach about America as God's chosen people and... Communism is of the devil and stuff. And that wasn't his main focus, but it was more for Hearst. That might have been the reason why, but he just, he just said, Puff Graham, make him known. And he ended up speaking. So he would come and say, I'm going to speak for a week. I'll speak every night for a week. They kept asking him to come back each week for eight weeks. For me as a speaker, I can't imagine that. Speaking every day, but one for eight weeks, he had, to, he had all the sermons prepared, but after a couple of weeks, he had to start preparing them on the fly. And by the time he was done, he, he administered to Hollywood celebrities and gangsters, and he was known throughout the United States. He had a household name. But it's interesting, at that time, he began to shift more and more. In 1947, his good friend and former classmate, Carl F.H. Henry, the great journalist, had written a book called uh, The Uneasy Conscience of American uh, Evangelicalism. And what he said is he said, we have a spiritual civil war going on. On one side, we have the extreme left. This is my left. The extreme left, which are, are liberal people calling themselves the modernists. And they do wonderful things for people, but they don't follow the teachings of the Bible. And in many cases, we wonder if they even know Christ. On the other hand, we have these people that teach what the Bible teaches, but they have no compassion. They're just, they're just fighting for their position all the time. He says, we need to marry the two. We need to engage our culture. Billy believed that, and and, and that was something that took a while to kind of work through them and figure out exactly how that works. For Billy, he said the person who became his hero and the person that he most followed from that point on as an evangelist when he realized that he had a big platform, he followed the example of D.L. Moody. And Moody, Moody basically emphasized love, that you will have judgment, but God loves you. And you need to love him. You need to be in relationship with him. God, God, God is hard on you because he loves you. And God forgives. And he began to emphasize that more and more. Moody put together parachurch organizations outside of the church that would pull all the churches together. And he wanted this form an ecumenical, evangelical, worldwide movement. And Billy Graham said, I'm going to take that and build off of that. And in the next 10 years, he started so many different ministries. Uh, he actually got, he got so much flack for, for starting Christians in um, movies, Worldwide Christian Pictures, and later had his... Na- he, he actually has a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. He got so much flack for going on television for some of the magazines he put together. But he put together all these different things, and then he helped others do the same. He worked with the Navigators. He, he started helped start Crew International. He started Gordon-Conwell University, the U.S. Center for World Missions. Um, I mean, he worked with Young Life and... and, uh, and Fellowship of Christian Athletes and help finance them and get them started. And he just got everything going. But you know what he was? uh, He was best known for his speaking ministry. And it really peaked in 1957. In 1957, he spoke at the Madison Square Garden. You know what his crusade there in New York City. And they kept having him come back. They had him come back for 16 weeks. For 16 weeks, he spoke every night of the week except Sundays. He spoke to over 2 million people. He was so exhausted that he said, after that, I was never the same again. During that time, he invited liberals, Catholics, and Orthodox to come and join them in their ministry. He would always reach out to everybody and not compromise his faith. The more fundamentalists became angry at him. They said, they're controlling you, Billy. But the newspaper men said, it looks like Graham's controlling them. And many became to come to know Christ. And that was generally considered the birth of what we call the New Evangelical Movement, which we're, we're really a part of. Uh, we're really trying to engage culture and find the middle ground. It's so sad today because newspaper men today will, will label people, you know, the, the white evangelicals, usually the white Southern evangelicals. But the truth is, is if you go especially to metropolitan areas, whites are no, white evangelicals are a minority. And most evangelicals in the world today are in South America, Africa, and Asia. Did you know that? It's a worldwide movement. And so they're really to say that the white evangelicals as if we're the majority, those of us that are white, is is a misnomer. And so the ministry began to explode, and he had other big movements after the speaking still, but that was kind of the height of it. But then he continued to do other things. Um, He got involved socially. And the biggest issue of social justice of the day was civil rights. Um, I read recently that he was slow to get involved with civil rights. There could be nothing further from the truth. He was the first evangelist that would insist that he have interracial meetings. Um, And on one famous occasion, he actually went down and tore the ropes down. And he wasn't one to get angry, but his face was flushed and he was angry and nobody wanted to mess with him. He just tore all the ropes down and he said, everybody comes together. He befriended Martin Luther King, Jr., and he got all sorts of flack, hate mail and everything else, when he asked him to come and pray at the Madison Square Garden um, meetings. And King had nothing but praise for him. And when he died, when King died, uh, Graham said publicly, he was nothing less than a prophet. The big criticism that Billy Graham had was that he would not march. He didn't feel like that was the ministry God had called him to. In 2002, when he was in his 80s, uh, Cincinnati had one of the first highly publicized shooting of an unarmed black man by a police officer. Everybody said they weren't coming. The, uh, you know, the, the uh, theater and the um, athletics programs, everybody shut down. Everybody stopped coming. They totally boycotted Cincinnati. He was already setting up to go there for what he was going to have the Cincinnati mission. So what was he to do? He counseled with the people around him. Oh, by the way, shortly afterwards, when the civil rights started, he hired a black man, Howard Jones, to be one of his evangelists. And he said it was a great decision because one time he was attacked. guy tried to attack him on stage while he was speaking in Latin America. And, and uh, Jones was a former football player, and he tackled the guy down. And he said, I was so, so glad I hired him. Um, LAUGHTER but Jones just loved him. They had a great relationship. They traveled around the world together, and Jones talked about this too—that Billy talked to him, and he talked to the African-American churches. And most of them said, "We want you to come." So he came. A whole world criticized Billy Graham—he was, you know, racist and everything else. But by the time he was done, everybody was praising him, because he used that to bring every nationality and all the groups—the blacks and whites—together and to find healing in Cincinnati. That was Billy Graham. He called that ironic theology, a theology of peace. And he propagated it primarily through Christianity Today, which he had a major role in, which is one probably still the leading Christian uh, magazine in the world today and very influential in people's lives and explaining who he was. You know, the most, po- the most controversial part of Billy's life was what? Politics. Um, he got involved in politics, knew 12 presidents. He said this, he said, I'm not I'm not for the left wing, I'm not for the right wing, I'm for the whole bird. <laughs> but sometimes it got a little bit too involved in it emotionally. There are some guys like, Eisenhower was his personal hero. Eisenhower was everybody's hero in those days. And, Billy helped persuade him to run for president and was a spiritual advisor for him. He got pretty close to his southern buddy, Lyndon Johnson. They hung out a lot together. He spent a lot of time praying with him, probably more than anybody else, you know, going through the Bible and, and working with him. And one time he even promoted his poverty program, and he got in trouble for that. He was not that close to Richard Nixon because nobody was close to Richard Nixon. Um, but Charles Colson says, Chuck Colson says he was probably closer. Nixon trusted him more than anybody else. He got himself in a lot of trouble with Nixon. Nixon manipulated him, and uh, when it all came out and he heard the tapes of Nixon and his profanity and his racism, Billy got so sick that he vomited, and Ruth said she'd never seen him so upset in his life, and he came out after that, and he says, I am completely nonpartisan. I will stand for moral issues. I will stand for Christian issues. I'm not doing anything else, but he did maintain friendships with them. Both Reagan and and Clinton gave him medals. He actually became closest friends. You know who he was closest with uh, until the time of his death was George H.W. Bush. They just connected as friends. They had a very close friendship. And, uh, in fact, George H.W. Bush once came to him and said, I have a son who's having a lot of trouble, and I'd like you to go speak with him. And Billy did, and that son says as a result of that he gave his life to Christ. And that son, who was then struggling with alcoholism, which he overcame, was future president George W. Bush. So he, he had an impact on a lot of people's lives. So you see how, you know, like what a great man he was. I mean, what, where was an area he didn't have an impact? And here's the thing that people missed. The biggest impact that Billy Graham had was globally. Um, at first they said, how could a dairy farmer have any impact outside of America, right? And um, he went to, to England in 1954 and 185,000 people came to hear him at one time. He became friends with the royal family. They set him up to go to India. So he met the interpreter, led him to Christ, I think trained him for ministry, and then he had him take over ministry there. He went down to South Africa, and he refused to speak to the apartheid crowd, so he spoke to the largest interracial group ever in the history of South Africa to that time. He started a prayer ministry for interracial people, everybody together, and it grew to be over 350,000. And then he went and he spoke in 1973 to Korea to a jaw-dropping 1.1 million people at one time. Um, His impact was incredible. But what he did was even more important is he began to work with all the people to try to find a theology um, for evangelism, to try to find a unifying strategy for worldwide evangelism. And that resulted in 1974 with the historic um, World Congress on Evangelism um, in Lausanne, Switzerland. That brought forth and it highlighted two men, uh, Donald McGavern and his, uh, and, um, Ra- and Ralph Winter. And these guys came forward and they said, we want to reach the world for Christ. Then we need to reach people that don't read the Bible because it's, it's in a language. They don't have a language yet that's written and they can't read the Bible and they can't understand us. And we need to find these cultural groups that are isolated from the rest of the world. And Winter called them the unreached people groups. He says, we have a target. We can reach the whole world if we reach all the unreached people groups. If there was a Paul, he was the Paul. Ralph Winter was the Paul. He was the missionary statesman and, and scholar and dynamo. And, and Billy Graham took off on that and got very excited. In the 1980s, he started having meetings in Amsterdam. The Billy Graham Association spent millions of dollars to bring in international evangelists and train them to reach the unreached people groups, to reach the whole world for Jesus Christ in this generation. The question is often asked, who will replace Billy Graham? And I read something that was fascinating. They said, no one, because no one needs to. He put all the mechanisms in place. He did his job. We don't have that many people left, you know, just a few thousand left to reach. Now it's up to us to finish the job. In his last years, he was, you know, a missionary statesman. He would, you know, a statesman, Christian statesman. He would hand off his ministry to his son, Franklin. He continued to to be around. Um, Many remember him at the 9-11 when he spoke at the National Cathedral and comforted the country. And as he got in his 80s, he kind of came full circle he would have modern contemporary Christian groups singing, you know, doing hip-hop music and pop music of different kinds, and the, and the kids would be singing and dancing with them, and then when they were done, this old man would shuffle up to the podium with a shock of white hair and pale blue eyes stooped over and a crackle in his voice, and I know because I was there and I saw him. When he was in San Diego... It was an incredible experience because every age group was represented. My son was so captivated by Billy Graham that he wouldn't stop talking about him for a week. I got tired of Billy Graham, really. <laughs> I mean, I, I was there. I was there, okay? Um, but the, people were crying, you know, and when he made his altar call, thousands came down. Um, and he didn't have the energy anymore, but it was just, he was just gracious and he was real and he had lived it. And I remember him saying at the end there, he said, San Diego, this is the last time I'll see you. Next time I see you, they will be in heaven. What a powerful statement. Uh, and that was something he was waiting for. You know, those last years were really hard for him. Um, he, he lost Bev, who lived to be like 105, finally died, big old Bev, the, the singer. Um, and I think he died about, I don't know, I want to say about eight years ago. Um, Cliff was with him till almost the end. We lost Cliff just a few years ago. That was really hard on him. They lived close to each other. They were just the tightest of friends. Um, and, of course, worst of all was, was his wife, Ruth. He talked about her all the time. His pastor said they interviewed his pastor who would come and visit with him weekly and his pastor said you know he's just so down to earth he's just so real but he said based on what I've talked to him he says I think what happened when he got to heaven is the first person to meet him was Ruth and she said why is it taking you so long but he was, he was wanting to go to heaven so we're glad for him a couple of lessons we want to learn from him you know we talk about the walk a lot and so we want, to, we want to talk about the walk we see God working here but there's a few things here first of all prayer what can we learn about Billy Graham that will help us in our prayer life? Billy Graham never stopped praying. He's an example of 1 the Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16-18. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. He had this incredible way of moving into prayer right in the middle of conversation. He just was always on the verge of praying. He prayed with everybody. You almost didn't talk with them, You didn't pray with him. He just had that way about him. He just liked to pray. And and he prayed with power. People said when they prayed with him, he prayed with a passion. He just he knew God personally, and he believed it, and it was part of his life and everything he did. What happened if we prayed that way? And he confessed his sins. He was constantly questioning himself. People that would interview him, he would say, "You know, I did this wrong or that wrong, and I wish I could have improved here." And I'm just, I want God. You know, he just wanted to please God. What if we had those kinds of hearts? It just challenges us to pray all the time, to pray with each other. We're going to be having a prayer initiative we're going to start in a couple of weeks. So I want to, you know, prepare you for that. The second thing is Bible study. He studied his Bible. He spent time, as busy as he was, every day he spent time reading his Bible. He usually would read several Psalms and a proverb every day. And you know what he said? If I had a weakness, it was I didn't spend enough time studying my Bible. What a challenge that is to us! Just to even spend a, a day, you know, just to spend a, a half 15 minutes a day studying the Bible. For many of us, that's not even doing that, and, and that would be a good place to start. And then his love for the church family, you know, his love for his family. He learned to love his family. His parent, fam, his kids forgave him for not being around, and he uh, has had you know mended relationships with them. We need to be there for our kids, and not make that mistake. We need to be there for our kids. Um, we need to have a wife or husband if we're married that is our partner in whatever we do, that we're partners in ministry. And I, you don't have to be a pastor to be in ministry. You're in a ministry, whatever you're doing. And we all need our friends. You know, um, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, 5.12 says that a strand, two strands are not easily broken and three strands are even stronger. Talk about friendships. Who's your friend's? Billy Graham had four guys that he was close to. One died and he had three guys. Uh, no, he had three guys he was close to when he died and he had two guys to the very end of his life. These were guys that could get in his face and challenge him. These were guys that he could go to in no matter how bad his crisis or what he did wrong. Who is it that you would call on the phone or you would text if everything went wrong in your life outside of your spouse? Who is it that you have a relationship like that with? Look at the Apostles. Peter James and John and Andrew; those guys were so tight. Who who are the people in your life? Who's your Bev Shea? Who's your Cliff Barrows? Who's your Grady Wilson? And then finally, we see his love for the lost. You know, Billy Graham reached so many people in the world, but you know what? He didn't really always lead people to Christ. That's kind of a misunderstanding. He got people to come forward to talk to counselors. The counselors led people to Christ because it's impossible for him to lead everybody to Christ. That's why everybody has to do it. Like anybody else, Billy Graham could only deeply influence maybe eight to 15 people in his life. And you each can do the same thing. And if everybody in this room just influenced the unchurched people in your life, imagine the impact that we could have for Christ. He was never shy about giving his message. And it's basically what we say on Sunday mornings that you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you've never done that, um, I encourage you to do that. We're not gonna have an altar call (laughs) like he always did, but we do want you to talk about it to each other and come and talk to us if you have any questions. The bottom line, though, with this is that when all is said and done, and you look at the story, it's just too freakish. The stuff that happened, the people that came into his life, the doors that opened, it wasn't about him. It was about God. Uh, There's a lot of people that have ability, even better. It's been argued there's people that had more ability than he did or more gifted than he was. And there's people that had great character, maybe as great as his character, but God chose to work through him. Our job is to do the best we can, to to love our lives and have fun like he did, to have a good sense of humor and enjoy it and do the best we can. God takes care of the rest. Why did he use Billy Graham? Billy was repeatedly asked why he would use a dairy farmer's son to reach the world. And his answer was usually along these lines. He said, that's one thing I don't know. Uh, And he says, it's one of the first things I'm going to ask him myself. Um, I believe he has the answer now.